Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And Tom, we have with us today our first guest, and he is, of course, Joseph Quinlan uh, with U.S. Trust, Chief Market Strategist. And Joseph has put together a note on what to watch out for in 2017 and uh, a lot of things to be cautious about. Joseph, uh, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, you can mention the Rangers if you'd like. They're like number one or number two. They've had a good run. Good. Oh, come on. They're they're killing it. They're killing it. All right. Yeah. Uh, Joe, you've written a note, Trumponomics, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It seems like investors have really focused on the good the last couple of weeks. When does the bad and the ugly start to emerge? Um, good question, because you're right. The markets have given the benefit of the doubt that the glass is half full. But we're watching very carefully, not, not so much the deficits and the debt uh, interest rates. Um, trade policy, investment policy, that's going to be hugely important. And I think it's important for, you know, we're a large economy. Um, but we're still only part of a broader global economy. We only have less than 5% of the world population. So U.S. companies need foreign markets, resources, natural resources, capital. And if we kind of pull back or turn our back to that, we're going to have some issues. I think, but that, I think that's a story for the second half of 2017. Why second half of 2017? Because everyone's focused on infrastructure spending. They're all focused on tax reform, lighter regulatory touch. That's the good news. That's the feel-good market that we're in right now. So I think earnings are going to be good for the fourth quarter as we report going into January. But I do think if we do go down this path, protectionist path, so to speak, that will come back to haunt us. So this reflation trade that we've been seeing, um, it's certainly run a huge amount uh, since the election. Are we, what, one third of the way through, halfway through? I mean, what inning are we in if you had to liken it to baseball? In the reflation trade? I mean, I'm maybe second or third inning. I mean, this Second is, or yeah, third this inning. This is just, you know, late cycle reflation trade because we still have, if you really, the key will be unlocking the capital expenditure side of the equation. So CEOs, if they do step up, they hire, they give back a share buybacks, they, they build more bolt-on, get the infrastructure spending, whether it's internet readiness, the ports, it could go on. But they've had decades of decades of cheap money, and they could have done that. Apple has billions of dollars mm-hmm. of cash on its balance sheet. Um, it just doesn't know what to do with it. Doesn't, well, there's a deficit demand as well, but it's also how it's treated. So we've, you know, our corporate tax rate is effectively the highest in the world, so we do keep it offshore. Capital goes where it's treated best, and it hasn't been the United States. If that's going to change, then I'm going to, you're going to see a lot more capital inflows but, from company, U.S. companies themselves. You know, I'm glad we revisited this uh, because, to me, it's the arch issue uh, for Mr. Trump. Do you see policy incentives to change corporate behavior? I don't detect that. I detect Lockean, you know, markets and, you know, individual corporate behavior. There's no police to tell, you know, Caterpillar what to do with their money, is there? Well, we, we don't want to, te- we, we want to give them the incentives, Tom. You're right. We give them incentives. What is an example of an incentive that would work? To me, it's just simply 
credits are just app. You got to put this amount of money in. Well, you, I think Tom, I'm in favor of like an infrastructure bank, and we should think more like Japan or China and Japan, particularly China, when it comes to buildings. So let, let's float a hundred year bond. Let's have the money there to really fix our ports, the railroads, and that you know if we if we kind of lay it out there, create the playing field such that here's the incentives, here's the mm-hmm. goals, global competitiveness. I think these cor- corporations, Caterpillar, Deer, otherwise, then yeah. they kind of. Take the wall, run with it. Uh, just to switch gears here, the inflation dynamic that U.S. trust sees, part of this issue, and we worry about it in the United Kingdom with a leg up on inflation or even nascent reflation in Japan, what is your inflation call for next year away from better GDP? We're looking for around 2.5%. So that's we're looking for 2 to 3% pickup. We're going to see run a little bit hotter than it has. Is it going to, you know, wage pressure that we saw in the late yeah. 70s? We don't see that. You know, automation, you know, if we're doing more with less. That's not going to change. But I do think you're going to have to start pay up. We've heard it from our clients that are big business owners, small business owners. They're going to have to pay up to keep the labor. But it doesn't run so hot that we're back in the early 70s or late 80s. Did you learn anything from Chair Yellen at the FOMC news conference when it came to inflation? She was asked about her comments regarding a high-pressure economy. And she seemed to walk back uh, some of the references she made to a willingness to let the economy run hotter than then perhaps people had realized it I, now saying, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. Well, if, if, if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, she wouldn't be talking. You know, she would let the economy run a little hotter. I think, you know, she's got to be very careful about Janet Yellen, about how quickly do we get the fiscal stimulus? And no one knows because it's Congress, it's the White House. And then she's how much is she going to lean into that with, with more hawkish views on a monetary policy? So we're very much kind of skating here. Uh, it's not necessarily thin ice, but there's a yeah, but, game going on here. And Scarlett and I have talked about this. The arch issue is can corporate and business America, and how it folds into equities and, frankly, into other markets, can it remove itself from our political discourse and the tensions that we see? No, I don't think so, Tom. And I think we've got a you know a president elect that you know won't won't let that happen in terms of being outspoken about insourcing, outsourcing, and calling out companies. Yeah. So no, they cannot they divorce can't, themselves. Because you know, I bring this up, Scarlett, because you know Rachel Sklar just retweeted out that iconic moment, the classic moment in The Sound of Music, where Christopher Plummer walks out of his mansion and rips up the Nazi flag. I mean, that's inflammatory mm-hmm. towards any of our domestic or frankly uh, world politics. But that's the emotion corporate officers deal. Do they just ignore that? No, I mean, they, they, they won't be able to, Tom, particularly when, remember, it's, if we're going to take on like Mexico, China, um, you know, Europe, so they're not going to stand still. So I think corporate America also has to get ready for the retaliatory effect of our policies. Does that prompt them to spur up decision making or to back off completely and say, you know what, we're not going to do anything until we get clarity, however long that might take? No, I, I think hopefully they're going to move forward. They've been sitting on their hands for quite a while here. They've got the cash, and I think they want to get going. I mean, they want to work with the president. This, they want this economy to run a little hotter, and they're ready to step up and play. Speaking of cash, how much cash is sitting on the sidelines? Uh, during the rally before the election, as, as things were kind of just holding steady, we were talking about how so many people are reluctant to put down and they were just going to kind of ride things out. Now that we have a definitive result, you've got Republican control of Congress and the White House. Is that cash being put to work or is it still sitting on the sidelines? It's slowly. I mean, a lot of people are, don't want to chase this rally. We're seeing a lot of inflows from the emerging markets, but I've got some clients that are just still waiting for that mm-hmm. pullback. I think we'll get a pullback in January and February. Okay. We always do. And then you're going to
going to see a lot more cash come into the market. Joe Quinlan with us, always with insight within his U.S. trust piece, and he's been looking at global obesity. I was making jokes about it, about me and Scarlett, the president-elect. But You were making jokes about global obesity? Not funny, yeah. Tom. No, not funny. We'll talk about diabetes and uh, seriously what it means for the global uh, community with Joe Quinlan of U.S. Trust. Christopher Whalen crushing us this morning, out Scarlet Foods, suggesting that I stop with the Rogue One hype. Oh, yes. Various family members saw it and were bedazzled by the movie. What, were you included in that no, party? No, I did not go, but I was ordered to go at a later point. Oh, okay. So on a repeat viewing by the other family members. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But... Did you did the Foo household see Rogue no, One? No, we resisted. We resisted only because we couldn't get tickets for the opening oh, weekend. Stuck. You were stuck in hockey rinks. All this weekend. is true. I was there for eight hours in Mount Vernon, in a hockey rink. Where's Mount, Ver Mount Vernon? Like Virginia? No, Mount Vernon, New York. There's not a rink out behind President Washington's place. There might be. Who knows? But unfortunately, I was yeah. not at that one. I don't know. Tweet into us or uh, email into us. Rogue One getting rave, rave family reviews. It's a dark movie, sort of like Empire Strikes Back, was what we heard. Critics uh, <clears throat> beg to disagree with uh, the middle child. <laughs> Joe, you've, you've, this is what you've done brilliantly for decades. You do, you know, economics and all that. And all that. And then you drop in, you parachute in something really smart and removed from what we do. And you use Brazil as the metaphor for rising global obesity. Mm. And, you know, I make jokes about it, but there's nothing funny about this, is there? No, not at all, Tom. And it's it's emblematic of, you know, honestly, it's, it's emblematic of more convergence in lifestyles, higher per capita incomes. And you, whether it's Brazil, whether it's China and other parts of the emerging markets, I mean, the more processed food and you know, more sedentary lifestyles. Instead of working in a factory on Saturday, you've got people in malls. So it's very interesting. Yeah, but it, we just eat too much. I mean, you got a beautiful yeah. column on calories per day. They've got China, India, U.S., Scarlet Foo. She's way off the meat. I mean, yeah, I have I my can't own. Vouch for that, but. I have my own row here. No, but certainly, if you look at the different uh, lines here, who leads the way? Well, certainly, uh, India is behind. Two thousand four hundred fifty-nine calories per day. Tom, I'm looking here at the U.S. three thousand six hundred thirty-nine, but not far behind is India. Excuse me, is China thirty-one hundred calories per day, uh, and then you've got Brazil at three thousand two hundred sixty-three calories per day. Going rapidly. It, the world is becoming outsized. It's supersized. I mean, it's just, it is remarkable to go to China. I've gone many, you know, over the decades. And when you see overweight or obese children, even, so you've got more diabetes, you've got some serious issues, car, you know, liver diseases, that's coming. And it's, it's very bullish, you know, right or wrong for great U.S. companies or medical equipment imaging and so forth, healthcare giving. It's a, it's a big deal, lots of money that's being played out. And globally. you also note the urbanization rate of yeah. these different countries. What What's the correlation there? Well, when you live in the rural areas, you're typically working, you're gathering wood. Excuse me, I have to interrupt. Here's the correlation, Scarlett. If you live on Central Park, your doctor yells at you more about losing weight. Okay, there's there's the... You should have plenty of time there's to walk, too. Tom. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you're, you're riding a bike, you're working in the field, you know, you're, you're very active. When you're in the city, you're typically, you know, you're going to an office, maybe you're, oh, really? you're going in a cab and so forth. So it's, it's a huge change, and, and it's really being played out across Asia and also in Africa as well can you can you not monetize this but is there a strategy to this that u.s trust can 
use to either make money or not lose money? To make money, Tom, we're thinking longer term and we're looking at some of these big pharma companies, whether it's U.S., Europe, and also the medical equipment and imaging. That's going to be huge. And any corporations that are more caregiving, you know, taking care of the elderly. You know, China has built a lot of things. You know, they love to build things, but they haven't built a healthcare system. And that's coming along. And they're really turning to U.S. companies or the European leaders to help them out because they're really behind the eight ball when it comes to their aging demographics and the obesity epidemic that comes with it. But one area where there's ca- where they're catching up really quickly is their technological infrastructure. And you you note that you say it's actually um, when it comes to China and investing, it might be better to think of it as a micro story than a macro story. Right. And Scarlett, this is, you know, China slowing down. Everyone knows that six, seven percent growth. But it's a micro story related to healthcare, to consumerism in China, e-commerce. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of undercurrents in China where they're, the market's growing uh, faster than GDP. So all Scarlett and I want to know, because we stand in the line and we're like, I can't see where the counter is. <laughs> is Joe Quinn a little longer short Shake Shack? <laughs> I, I'm long. You're yeah. long. Yeah, so are, long. We are all long Shake Shack. Absolutely. Joe Quinlan, thank you so much, as always. Um, just wonderful talking about where we go with a sustained reflation, obviously, led by President Trump's enthusiasm and also seriously on uh, global obesity and particularly its effect upon the health industry and uh, the follow on from children's uh, diabetes as well. Christopher Grisanti with us, Grisanti Capital Management. And you and I have gone through the morning, and I want to revisit this right now, which is that angst of, I'm in the market, I'm an active manager, you've got a great value track record, how do you catch up to a melt-up? What's the, you stick with your plan, or do you reallocate across sectors? What do you do? You know, Tom, we talked about that this morning, and, and I think the interesting answer is I don't think you do stick to your plan. I think the John Maynard Keynes quote is exactly right. When the facts change, you change your opinion. So how do you change your portfolio given Trump reflation? So there's some interesting things happening. First, we're seeing interest rates go up a lot faster than we ever thought they would two months ago. And so that, what that means is our banks can finally earn some money in the lending game like they used to. So financials are more attractive. Companies with high tax rates, which may actually okay. get cut in half, are attractive. Are the banks more attractive because you're trying to figure out what the income statement will do? Or are the banks more attractive because they're going to have the confidence to redeploy cash to Chris Cusante? Yes. <laughs> so it's both of those. Plus, add in lower regulation, possible loosening. We don't think repeal, but loosening of Dodd-Frank. And so you get a potent mix. Plus, you get some stocks that are pretty darn cheap because the expectations are so low. Well, speaking of Dodd-Frank, a lot of these banks spent millions of dollars retrofitting systems and personnel to comply with regulations. Do we presume that the banks' cost-cutting drives starts to take a backseat here as they prepare for an era of higher interest rates and increased lending? I think that's a good point, Charlotte. And it, the old joke now is that uh, banks are just law firms that also happen to lend money. <laughs> and so what we have here is the tailwind of decreased regulation, a steeper yield curve, and as Tom says, increased consumer confidence and folks wanting to borrow money for the first time in a while. So which kind of bank is better positioned for this? Are we talking the big multi 
national Citigroups, JP Morgan's, Goldman Sachs, which is the what the best performer in the Dow since the election? Or are you going to find better value in some of the smaller names, uh, some of the financials in the Russell 2000? You know, what we like, we would play it two ways. One is the Wells Fargo, which has gotten beaten up. And we think in a year or two, that will all be behind them. And they'll, they'll go back to their premium valuation. And the second is the more value way to play it, which is Citigroup, which is still pl- trading at 85% of tangible book value. We think in this kind of environment, it ought to trade well above book value. For mm-hmm. example, JP Morgan is approaching 1.7 times. So if you get even a return to a normal multiple of a few years ago, you've got a 30 40 50% increase in the stock price. Huh. Well, in terms of uh, moving beyond the financials, that that has been a sector that was long hated. How do you position yourself for the other hated sectors? Um, technology, not obviously not in that category, but you've got other names that people really couldn't get behind. Energy, for instance, because sure. no one could figure out what OPEC was going to do. Yeah, energy is not quite as hated as it, as it was, of course. Well, one of the hated sectors still is healthcare. And healthcare has missed out on this rally. It had that great one-day jump after the election, but it's since really come back on yeah. us. And, and your last guest, Joe, he was talking about the obesity crisis. That's obviously one point where the demographics really point towards healthcare being a long-term winner. Now, of course, it's in the penalty box right now because no one knows what's going to happen mm-hmm. with Obamacare. And that's yet another example oh. of hard-to-model stuff looking forward. So you're going right to Scarlet Food there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The guy, the guy from Dallas was in the penalty box for hitting Mr. Lundquist. <laughs> Big penalty box today. Big penalty Big box. Penalty Four box game today. suspensions. But, you know, who wants well health care? Who wants health care now? And that's the kind of group we like okay. because the expectations are well, extremely low. Uh, Bonnie Herzog has been around since time begins. She is the esteemed Wells Fargo analyst on consumer goods. Chris Crisanti with us. And I was not up to speed on this. Bonnie Herzog, thanks to Esha Day over at Bloomberg First Word, suggesting that Philip Morris may buy Altria in the next 70 months. But 70, 70% probability of a deal in the next six, six to 12 months outperform for both PM, Philip Morris International, and MO, Altria Domestic. But it's amazing what that says, Chris, about everything comes around. Because there was that great departing, that splitting years ago. It sure is, Tom. I mean, and, and we remember when those were great growth stocks. And now they have to combine because they're looking for ways to stabilize a relatively quickly declining revenue base. And they're terrific defensive stocks, but I think I'm not sure that's the place you want to be. So where do you want to be now? Do you want the the partial differential to be at the revenue line or do you want to go down to cash flow and operating income as a determinant with a Trump reflation, you got to begin to tilt more towards a revenue analysis, right? You do that, plus in a, in a kind of funny way, for the first time in a long time, we're looking at the tax line. You've got great domestic companies that don't have the opportunities that an Apple does to lower their tax rate. So a CVS or a Wells Fargo, they're paying high 30% tax rates. And so a, a cut there can add $1, $2 of earnings per share to their bottom line without breaking a sweat. So we're kind of looking there also. It would certainly give those companies needs a boost in the bottom line, but how long does that effect last for? Is it a one-off? Well, <clears throat> I don't think you get full value for it, but but clearly it, it's <laughs> it's a gift that keeps on giving in the sense that that $1 will be there the next year and the next year. So that's a, a billion or two or three billion extra dollars that they can buy back stock, they can increase dividends with, or they can invest to grow. So it's while it only happens once, it continues at a higher level for, you know, as far as the eye can see, so that's nice. And which companies will benefit the most quickly from the, the presumed tax cut that we'll be getting? Well, our favorite in that area is CVS. 
yes, because it's already down because of what we think is a cyclical trough in its earnings. And so what we see is a company trading at 11 times, but when you have this tax benefit in, it's trading at less than 10. So mm. that's, that just gives us an extra tail. And it's not the reason to invest, but it's a, it's a nice thing on the positive side of the ledger. Can you call it commodity turn? No, Tom. We've been I, asking no. a lot of different... <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And no, no, it's above my pay grade. And I think there's two kinds of people, those that can't call it and those that can't call it but don't know they can't call it. So, uh, you know, I would say it's very difficult. Now, what you can do is buy oil a year ago because you think sooner or later the supply and demand will turn it. But I don't think you can call the particular point when that will happen. So do you want to buy hydrocarbons or do you want to buy big oil? It's hard. I mean, as, as you know, we've been on the show almost a year ago. We were early, but about a year ago, we were buying hydrocarbons, and they've turned out to be Nobody loved investment. them. I mean, they've been phenomenal. No, and, and now I'd say I would switch it around, and I'd say that's what pharmaceuticals are today. They're the hydrocarbons of the hmm. beginning of next year. Let's do this, folks. It's, sort of, it's like that Monday before the holidays. Healthcare. Three years ago, four years ago. Speaker Pelosi sat there with the president, and everybody had the 48 pens they all signed, right. the 300 pens. They did the whole Affordable Care Act thing, and the stocks before that and during that and after that went to the moon. And then like maybe like the media stocks now, they pause. What do you do with that? Once you get a cyclical burst, three years down the road, do you rebuy? Do you recommit to health care? Well, it's interesting. Our opinion is that, yeah, Obamacare will be repealed, but the only thing that really will be repealed is they'll never call it Obamacare again. <laughs> but they're not going to take away pre-existing conditions. They're not going to take away uh, health care for kids on their their parents' program. Those things are just too popular. And it's really hard to imagine a world in which you roll back uh, protecting your citizens uh, against you know, health calamities. So we think the health care stuff has sold off too much. We think the price focus on drugs is appropriate but is overdone. And so you can buy bargains like Allergan and other things at close to 11 times. <clears throat> we think that's pretty good. Have you talked to uh, CEOs of these health care companies? I wonder what they think about the prospect of um, reformulating Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act or health care insurance in our country since we don't want to call either of those things under this new administration. Yeah. First of all, they're keeping a very low profile. Yes, they are. So much of the focus is on drug pricing. Second of all, I think they appropriately say, look, Donald Trump is not the uh, pro, pro higher prices, pro business in terms of health care. He's a populist. And so they're being very cautious on price increases. We just think that'll be a tougher game. We just think that's in the prices already of the stocks. And going back to the drug pricing, because that is something that Donald Trump has spoken out about. I mean, not in very specific terms, but in the idea that prices are too high and something needs to be done. What kind of action will likely be taken, or is it going to be jawboning for the, for the time being? We think at the end of the day, it'll only be jawboning. Now, jawboning can cause you know, disruptive headlines, mm, sure. but we think with a Republican Congress, it's going to be very difficult to get in the real price controls or reimportation things that would really seriously infect the uh, top line of the drug companies. Uh, let me go back to a stock you and I have talked about before. It's a small startup computer company out in Cupertino. <laughs> you mentioned 11 times earnings. Apple is breathtaking. I mean, even if you go out a year from now, do you do you rationalize buying Apple by saying I'm buying 2018? 
Oh, I think you do, and that's one of our 18 stocks, Tom. I'm a big fan of Apple. Uh, the only thing it doesn't have going for it is it's got an awfully low tax rate already, so that's not going to have that tailwind. But, you know, when you, it's the go-to place for all of our kids in terms of their mobile communications, and they're the next generation. And they seem to be forward-thinking. And for, the most essential thing for us is it's 11 times. It's not at 18 or 21 times. Isn't their reliance on China kind of worrying, though, given that they saw in the last... Oh, there you go, worrying again. Well, no, I mean, Chris points out that they, they he is concerned about China in 2017, and Apple became a China story pretty readily. Mm. In the no past doubt year. about it. No doubt about it. And and so getting back to, to our hour on TV before, the, the single toughest thing about the coming year is the, uh, the, is the variety of outcomes that we could have. Mm-hmm. So Apple may be on the bad side a victim of, of and, you know, antipathy with China. On the other hand, it may be the example of a warmer relationship that you know, they, yeah. the Trump and, and, and the head of China can shake hands on and say, hey, yeah. look, we're, we're building a better tomorrow. Chris, I, deal. I'm glad right. you brought this up. I've been dying to bring this up with Scarlett. Of course, I was thinking about it through the weekend knowing Ms. Fu would join us because mm-hmm. Gura's. Do you know what David's doing? He's off today. You know, spending time with the children. No, he's visiting artisanal stores in Brooklyn, <laughs> trying to find tasteful things for his family to buy. You know, he's Cal- being a responsible family man. There yeah, Cal pancakes was, I think, the short on the list. I saw his list of Christmas stuff. It's embarrassing. I mean, <laughs> just you know, how do you have an artisanal sausage? He was figuring it out for breakfast. Scarlett, I want to talk to you about Taiwan. Um, oh, you know, we've seen. You I, I really. I really value your perspective on these interesting relationships. What were you thinking and within your context in Taiwan? What do you think that dynamic will be next year between Mr. Trump, Beijing, and Taiwan? I think about the people in Taiwan and how excited they were about the acknowledgement that President-elect Trump gave to their country. At the same time, they're very mm-hmm. nervous about what could happen because um, – Nothing's going to change in China, sure. but yeah. for them, the positioning from China could get very, very violent very quickly. Is, be careful what you wish for. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Is there, Scarlet, within Taiwan, a nostalgia for the wisps of memory we have of Chiang Kai-shek and the 60s? Maybe among a certain 70s. cohort that's aged above 70, sure, but I don't think among the young people. The young kids, people, they, no. they don't, what, what is their, pers- what are the young kids? They're Taiwanese, they were born there, that that's what they think of themselves at. Yeah. I mean, there's a movement in Taiwan to rename the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, maybe even to raise it because of the, the island's history. Mm-hmm. It's something that they want to disassociate themselves with. Again, that's among uh, the younger generation, among a certain cohort of people 70 and older. See how she looks at me when, how she looks at me when she says that? <laughs> you, stood, you stood up a little taller yeah. when I looked over at you. David Gurr would use the word fossils. Uh, the fossils. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more polite than he is. Yes, Scarlett Fu with us on Taiwan. And, of course, an important discussion. We thank uh, particularly Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations for a recent perspective on uh, Taiwan. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. 
Let's bring in right now a CEO, somebody who's actually met a payroll <laughs> and also gave great leadership to the Cato Institute on Libertarian Theory. John Allison is a former president and chief executive officer of BBT and uh, darkened the door of Chapel Hill a few years ago. Um, John, wonderful to speak to you again. Uh, we just talked to Greg Vallier, who says the true conservative is Michael Pence. How does Cato judge the president-elect? Is Donald Trump a conservative? <laughs> that's, that's a fair question. I don't think you – know, remember, Cato is a libertarian, not conservative. Okay. That's a pretty big – That's where I was going. Come on, I'm writing the script here. You're not. Is he a conservative to start? Uh, no. No, I don't think he would be considered a conservative. Is he a libertarian a la Cato Institute? No. Oh, we're doing great here, Scarlett. <laughs> Save me here. I've got two no's. i got two no's from John Allison. Okay, if that's the case, is Michael Pence. This should, this should yeah, be an easy my, answer. My, Michael Pence is definitely a conservative and pretty close to being a libertarian and a great, I think, a great person. So will Michael, Pence, integrity. will Michael Pence turn Donald Trump into a conservative, into a libertarian? I think he will influence uh, Donald Trump, whether he can turn him into conservative or libertarian, I don't know. I suspect Pence is influencing some of the selections of people. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is a real conservative, and I, I, my guess is that Michael, uh, that uh, Mike Pence had some influence on that selection. I don't know that. I'm just speculating. Within that, and if I look at the Cato Journal of two years ago, a guy named Alan Meltzer wrote up a story, mm -hmm. starting out with Newt Vixel. Current lessons from the past. What have you learned, John Allison, from the past at Cato about the actual application of libertarian and even conservative theory? Can you do that in the devil's den of your Washington? That is a really great question. I think it takes powerful leadership because a lot of times you're pushing against the political wind. Let's face it. People in Washington, D.C. like to dole out money to get votes, I mean, both conservatives and liberals. <laughs> uh, you mm -hmm. know, conservatives like to bow it out to different groups, but they, they both like to, to – and to really have uh, conservatives, what you're looking at, I think, physically yeah. is lower taxes and lower spending both. And it's a lot easier to cut taxes than well, spending. <clears throat> let's That's get, a tough challenge. Scarlett Fu and Tom Keene with us, John Allison, uh, who has provided leadership to the Cato Institute among other endeavors, including his Wake Forest, and, of course, with BB&T uh, for years. We were talking, Mr. Allison, about the president-elect. I believe you were quoted as saying he's not a conservative, he's not a libertarian, which begs the question. I don't know if Nelson Rockefeller ever wandered in the door of the Cato Institute. Uh, <laughs> what is Mr. Trump if he's neither? I think he's a mixed bag, and I, I don't necessarily mean that in uh, negatively, I think on, in in some areas he's uh, very interested in rolling back the role of government. In other areas, he he you know he has a history and of being a, a crony, cronyist, a crony, what's called crony capitalism. I always thought thought it's crony socialism. But, you know, in the commercial real estate market, you often are dealing with government. Uh, he's used eminent domain. Those are not conservative or libertarian positions. So I, I think he's a mixed bag. So how does that carry over into how he sees, for instance, the Federal Reserve um, regulating the financial industry? Well, he, uh, I think it, he very much believes that Dodd-Frank and the overregulation by the Federal Reserve has been a major factor 
and reducing the growth growth rate in the economy. So I, he genuinely wants to deregulate right. the banking industry, the financial industry. And I think he's going to try to do that in two ways, hopefully uh, either roll back or theoretically repeal, I doubt repeal, but roll back Dodd-Frank. And secondly, putting people in leadership positions such as the FDIC and the OCC and in the Federal Reserve who are for much less regulation. You, you got to remember that we don't, excuse me, we don't really have rule of law in the United States. We have rule of regulators. Uh, Congress passes these sound good laws, and they have a huge range in how the regulators interpret them. Uh, since yeah. the financial crisis, they've been very tight in their regulations. I believe you're not on the board anymore at BB and T. They threw you out in the street in 2009. Do you have any? That's idea? correct. I know. Do you have <laughs> any idea how many people BB and T? Is a lesser than too big to fail bank have hired because of new regulation? Do you have a, that statistic in your head? Thousands, thousands. And in, in, addition, in addition to that, it impacts the work of every employee in the bank. So you've reduced the productivity not just by adding thousands of people who yeah. all they do is send forms to the government, but by having people misdirected in what they do. Yeah, Scarlett, BB&T, 38,000 employees. Yeah, that's saying something. There's a quarter million that are at some of our bigger banks. So as these banks shed some of the personnel that were brought on to comply with regulations, um, do they then move that headcount towards businesses that can generate revenue, that can generate income? Absolutely. I think that what they did in many cases was have to reduce, because of the pressure of of low margins, they reduced the staffing they had in the production side making loans. Uh, uh, which is what banks are supposed to do, and, and 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 I think you'll see them reduce the regulatory side and add staff to to grow their businesses because banks like to grow and that grows the economy and right. I, and I think you'll see a very healthy re- reallocation of resources if yeah. President elect Trump gets done what he wants. Everything Tank in Washington, folks, has uh, has a certain <clears throat> character, and there's ones that are perceived left and right and all that. And, John, I give Cato the highest marks for the debates I have heard there. You always have a cross-section of guests. Yes, it may be the token progressive or liberal, but you have real heated debates. Within the debate that you know in Washington, how many months or years does a president-elect have to affect change before we all start worrying about 2020? I really think he's got about... Six months at the best. Really? You think six months? I would have gone 18 months. Well, maybe longer, maybe longer, I hope. It, it, you know, I think there's getting it moving and then actually consummating it. So I think he can buy more time if he's actually got a, okay. a, a, a stuff in process. Okay, but come on, the Senate. Nobody in the Senate's ever darkened the door at the Cato Institute. Are Republicans in the Senate going to be the thing that blocks or checks or balances what we're going to see from Good Vice question. President Pence? I don't know the answer to that. I would say this. This is an interesting – this is what I would like to see. I don't want the Senate to block uh, what President Trump necessarily wants to do, but I do want them to restore the balance of the executive versus the legislature. The executive isn't supposed to be making laws, and it has been, and that's unhealthy because it takes away the debate process. And maybe the Republicans will see what happened under President Obama and the Democrats will see what's potential under uh, President Trump. And Congress will get back to legislating 
and and take away some of the power of the executive, and with it, a lot of the power of the bureaucracy, because the bureaucracy actually runs pretty much independent of the legislation. I don't think that's good. So we'll have a normally functioning Congress again? Is that what you're saying? That would be good. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's possible. I'm not predicting it. Although, Tom, the Democrats will be trying to to get in the way, right? I mean, they'll they'll be using pages out of the the Republicans' playbook. I think it will be possible. Mr. Ellison, are you kidding me? You actually think Congress is going to get its act together? I think it is possible because I think this is a unique moment where they both sides have an incentive because there's a lot of Republicans that – are still uncomfortable with President Trump and don't necessarily want to give him a carte blanche, uh, particularly to run massive deficits. John Ellison. Uh, And the the Democrats have the same problem. Thank you so much, John Ellison, of the Cato Institute and, of course, with BB&T. News that uh, Christine Lagarde of the International Monetary Fund found negligent. We'll get to that in a moment. Her colleague Jerry Rice, Dr. Rice, Director of Communications at the IMF for years at the World Bank, has this uh, brief statement from the International Monetary Fund. The executive board has met on previous occasions to consider developments related to the legal proceedings in France. It is expected that the board will meet again shortly to consider the most recent developments. To give us a primer in depth on this, Greg Viscusi from our Paris News Bureau, who has decades of linkage of France into the European economic and legal system. Greg, the Cour de Justice, 1993, I don't think there is a U.S. equivalent. It is three judges, and am I right, 12 politicians? Yes, and it's and it's only and it's only for crimes committed by political figures. It's sort of a special court that that is just just to try government officials. Do we do we have an equivalent in the U.S. in the United I Kingdom? Don't I don't I do not I do not think so. No, because I mean it, these would be because. That would, they would be covered just by regular criminal cases. These are these are not necessarily criminal cases. It's 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 sort of crimes that would cry or wrongdoing committed in the right. act of doing your job. You well, see. Which defines all of us, including me. I would be in the court. <laughs> but Greg, help me here with how this will play in the Paris press. How does Le Mans take it in the other eight newspapers that you know better than we do? Less than you would think. I mean, if this had happened five, six years ago, it would have been a big deal. Don't forget, she had been a minister in, in, in Nicolas Sarkozy's government. Um, her, occasionally, her name would come up now and again, even uh, as a presidential candidate. There, there were various people pushing for, for her to be a presidential candidate, candidate when, the, when the far-right leaders were, were divided about who, who, who they should run. Ever since she's gone off to Washington, and, and she's always made it very clear that she actually wasn't interested in, in any further jobs in French politics, she's kind of dropped out of the French scene. So, um, and, and, and there, there, are, there are more than enough candidates for next year's presidential election here. There's no shortage. Um, so the, the effect here is less than you'd imagine. There's more just sort of just the lurid interest in, you know, the huge sums of money. Um, and Bernard Tapie, although he too is, is dropped out of the scene greatly, still has a certain fascination for people. So there's a morbid interest in this, but it, it's not something that's going to unsettle or rock French politics, not by any means. And also we should mention that the judge in announcing the verdict said that Christine Lagarde will not face a fine or a prison term. So, Well, even more than that, doesn't even have a criminal record. She's basically she's basically been told you did wrong, but there's absolutely okay, no but punishment. This is critical. And Scarlett and I were talking about this, Greg, before we went to you. 
What does negligence mean if this is just a celebrity walkthrough as people look at big money? What is negligence? Well, in this case, it means that, that you know, according to the court, she should have seen the big sum of money that, that, that Tapi was awarded by this arbitration and should have stopped it, you know, should have stepped in and said, no, no, it's not in the interest of the state to of the government to pay out this sum of money and should have stopped it. That that's I mean her argument is that this thing had been going on for years in, in courts, you know, why not just you know, so forget this is the, the actual facts go back to the nineteen eighties. The actual events go back to the nineteen eighties. Um of, of of when Tepi was theoretically defrauded by Credit Lyonnais. So um she just wanted to get it over with. That's her argument. Um yeah. you know, the argument against it is that there was a lot of money at stake. She should have stepped in but Scarlett, can I point out that Madame Lagarde was 24 years old when this happened? <laughs> Feels that way. I mean, it's less about what she did versus what she didn't do. And in this case, well, exactly. she didn't seek more information, right? Exactly, which, which, is, which is why she gets the slap on the wrist but told that there's no, that there's no punishment and not, not even a legal record to come out of it. So can, what happens in terms of her, um, her stewardship of the IMF? Does this have any bearing on that? Question. That's up to the IMF, um, and, and apparently they are meeting today to decide what, what to make of it. I don't know what, what they would do. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a you know, your, your, second, your second French uh, um, director general has been, uh, has, has been convicted of something, on the other hand, or accused of something. On, on the other hand, it's, it's not really the most serious thing. I mean, as I said, there's no criminal record. There's no punishment. She basically is told she should have stopped something that she didn't have anything to do with. Um, it, so wait, it, let's translate this for the New York audience. Is this a misdemeanor? I mean, Greg, you got to understand my oh, entire man. knowledge of law came from L.A. law. Okay, <laughs> is this a misdemeanor? I don't know. I don't. I don't I think, think so. That's a very good question. That's a yeah, very good question. That's my only good I, I one this week. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to. I mean, it's a different legal system, but it's it's. It's it's I don't think it's a misdemeanor because in theory it's punishable by by a prison term and a major yeah one year in one theory. year in prison yeah. and fifteen thousand euros she may have to give up her whole Saint Laurent collection I mean, it's just it's just that in this case the judge decided not not to apply any of that so um, I I don't know what that makes it in terms of American. Uh, you know, I, I think in the U.S., though, in the statute of limitations a long time ago, we wouldn't even be talking about this. That's given, a good point. Given how long ago yeah. the, the, the events yeah. took place. Does she or can she appeal this if she wanted to? Yeah, she can appeal it. But bizarrely, um, in France, generally when you appeal a case, the whole case is retried a second time, not just – you know, when you appeal in the states, it generally is on questions of law. In France, the first after your, your first appeal, the whole trial is redone. In this particular court, that's not available. So she has to appeal to what's called the Cour de Cassation, which is the top top court in France, and they only rule on questions of law. They don't rule on the on the fact. They just rule on whether or not the law was properly applied. She could apply. She, she could appeal, and her, her lawyer was on was was interviewed earlier, at coming out out of the courtroom. She could appeal. Um, but you know what, what's 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 the gain? She doesn't have a criminal yeah. record. You know, she's not being punished or anything. Right. Um, they may just figure that you know it, it's not right. it's not worth it. Greg, uh, I, I was with Madame Lagarde uh, uh, two weeks ago with our John Micklethwaite at a event here at Bloomberg, and of course you see the the veneration for her within the United States and her celebrity and all that. Mm. How do the French people perceive Christine Lagarde? She's always been a much bigger deal amongst foreigners than the French. She's never had a huge, huge following in France. She was always the darling of of, of the of the foreign press corps 
in Paris. And whenever you heard about Christine Lagarde, Christine Lagarde being suggested as sort of a possible candidate in French politics, it tended to come from the English-speaking press, not from the French press. Um, not to say that she's disliked her or anything, but she's always had yeah. this, 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 this near veneration in, in, in the English-speaking world that, that doesn't that haven't really seen in France. This has been hugely valuable. Greg Viscusi, thank you so much. Just hugely valuable from Paris, a briefing on, am I right, Scarlett, to say negligence, conviction? Well, I mean, technically that is what it is. Um, But I I liked your question to Greg about whether this is applicable or comparable to a misdemeanor in the United States. We know that she's not going to face any kind of jail time. She's not going to pay any fine. Um, He called it a slap on the wrist. Maybe that's all it is at the end of the day. I mean, some negative headlines perhaps, but it doesn't seem to affect her ability to do the job because when she was appointed to the IMF or when she was elected to the IMF, the member nations knew about this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.